Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. So, Victor, something a little different this week. We've just passed yet another anniversary of September 11th, now 14 years behind us. And today we're going to look back a little on that day and how the West's struggle with radical Islam has developed since then. Let's start here. There was a phrase that became famous about the 1990s, about this sort of parenthesis between the end of the Cold War and 9-11, which was that we in the West were on a, a holiday from history. Um, another famous phrase, one that probably stems from that in some sense, the 9-11 Commission cited a failure of imagination as one of the primary reasons that those attacks were successful. And yet – Victor, it's it's not only with hindsight that we can see the threats were developing. We had very good evidence in the 90s about the seriousness of al-Qaeda and the scope of their ambitions, if not the precise form they'd take. How would you explain why we nevertheless seem to develop a blind spot on that issue? Uh, I, I would offer the analogy of Germany between the 20 year period between 1919 and 1939, or maybe the 20 year period in the Soviet Union from 1947 to 67. And during that period, it, it takes a long time, uh, apparently, for Western complacent democracies after they've just finished wars. And we had finished the Cold War, if I could use it, if I could call it a, a war, to gear up again and say, you know, war may unfortunately be with us as a human species and it's not something that's over now and we can take a, as you said a holiday from history so i think that was part of it and the other part of it is unfortunately the great tenet now in western societies is multiculturalism or the idea that there is no culture that's exceptional especially not uh, western culture so the idea was well if something happens abroad or that if we are in a, a argument or a war or a conflict or a struggle of ideas, then we have to be introspective to a degree that we haven't been in the past. We're postmodern. We're in the 21st century. And uh, maybe it's our fault or maybe the, we weren't that good to begin with. And that was especially true of people who happened to be non-European uh, poorer than we are, a different religion than we are, unlike, say, the Germans or the Italians in, uh, in World War II or the uh, Soviets in the Cold War. They didn't have a religion, but they came from the same embryo in the West that we did. And so it kind of dovetailed with very influential people in the United States and government, the media, journalism, the foundations, and of course, on, in the arts, Hollywood, academia. So we were very ill-prepared both uh, intellectually and psychologically, to deal with people from the Arab world and say to them, these problems that you're having, both within your country and against us, the West, whether it's Kobar Towers or blowing up Marines in Lebanon or the First World Trade or the, the big hit on 9-11, that's not our fault. It's not neo-imperialism and colonialism. It's, you better look in the mirror and, and ask yourself, why are you still tribal non-democratic, can't embrace capitalism, uh, don't respect private property, don't have equality of the sexes, don't have freedom of speech, don't value the individual, uh, anti-Semitic, somewhat racist, 
if you are going to not change, all of those ingredients add up to economic failure. And unfortunately, that message was really brought home to the Arab world uh, by globalization, especially the Internet, cell phones, movies, CDs. And so when they looked around and they said, wow, South Korea is doing pretty well. Europe's doing well. The United States is doing well. China's doing well. Everybody's doing well with us. But we're not going to say why. We're going to blame the Jews or the United States or the Europeans. So that's where we are. And we don't have the, the imagination or the courage to answer that back with any confidence. You know, the sentiment that was everywhere after those attacks, immediately after those attacks, was this idea that 9-11 changed everything, that there was some newfound sobriety in the American people. There was talk back then about those attacks being the catalyst for a new greatest generation because the stakes were going to be civilizational again. And, and yet it doesn't quite seem like that's happened. I note here a passage from your most recent article at National Review, which is on the broader state of the West right now, quote, at least for now. We are in a cycle of Western decline waiting either for another Churchill, Thatcher or Reagan to scold us out of it or for an existential enemy, foreign or domestic, of such power and danger that all our progressive pieties will dissipate in the face of danger. Close quote. Victor, isn't that what we thought 9-11 was? And if carnage on that level isn't enough to do it, how confident can we, can we really be that we can get shaken out of this? Well, I think what happened with 9-11 was two things. One, the much pilloried and caricatured Bush protocols, whether it's Guantanamo or enhanced interrogation or the Patriot Act or going across the seas and hunting people down or predators or whatever they were, were very successful. And although we've had some minor attacks, they've stopped anything of the of the caliber of another 9-11. And they're so successful that the chief critic of them, a Senator Obama, when he came into office, for all the rhetoric about shutting down Guantanamo and Bush did that and Bush did that, he more or less embraced them. And the result is that our enemies have not been able to yet uh, come up with the imagination how to get through our defenses. I think we all say that they can, but they just simply haven't done it yet. We know they've tried on 50 or 60 occasions. And then the second thing is uh, the Iraq saga, both the immediate success, which built up everybody's expectation of taking out Saddam in three weeks, and then the insurrection that lasted four or five years, and then the final victory with the surge, and then the pulling out of Iraq and handing it over to ISIS, that really confused and demoralized a lot of people. Had we either won very quickly and put down the insurrection, or had we left as we did in Korea or Germany or Italy or Japan, the twenty or 30,000 occupation troops then I don't think a lot of the problems we're having today uh, about confidence and the Middle East and a mess would be with us. How and I guess to what extent do you think that radical Islam and jihadist terrorism has changed in the, the 14 years since 9-11? Is it, is it more of a threat now? Is it less? Is it different? Yes, I think it's more of a threat uh, for a couple of reasons. And the first, of course, is the specter of Iran. We were not dealing with state actors to the same degree. They were stealthy actors. They were always seeking deniability of culpability. Uh, so the Saudi royal family or people in Pakistan, they all denied what they were doing. They didn't want to have their state fingerprints on any terrorist act. Not so with Iran. They were pretty much open about it. Uh, what they've done 
with Hezbollah or Hamas or what they did to Americans in Iraq, and they're going to probably get a bomb. So that's the first thing. It's much different now, much more dangerous. And the second is that uh, ISIS is nihilistic. Uh, Al-Qaeda kept saying that they had a particular agenda that apparently appealed to a lot of quote-unquote moderate regimes in the Gulf, at least funded it. But ISIS, its attitude is apocalyptical. It wants to destroy antiquities, behead, burn alive. And it's very hard to know um, in traditional diplomatic terms or even military terms what you would do for them to cease and desist without destroying them. So all this talk about, well, we should take their oil, we should embargo, I don't think any of that's going to work. Ultimately, if you're going to um, deal with ISIS, you're going to have to bomb them or go in there and kill them and then make make it a, a real hazard for anybody to identify with them in the way that 1945, it was not too cool to say you were a Nazi or you were an Italian fascist. And that's this, I think that's beyond us right now. This um – this phrase, this framing has sort of fallen by the wayside during the Obama years. But dur- during the Bush administration, the conventional term here was that we referred to this as the, the war on terrorism. If we, if we accept that framing now, if we define it that way, are we winning? No, we're losing because uh, we're losing in a variety of ways. And First of all is um, if you look at the map and you look at the governments that were there – pretty either afraid of us or willing to work with us. Um, Gaddafi gave up his, his nuclear weapon program and that Libya is now after Benghazi and well, you know, we came, we saw Gaddafi died from Hillary. It's a complete mess. Lead from behind led to nothing but Mogadishu on the Mediterranean. And Yemen, the president said Yemen was a model of anti-terrorist. Uh, it's gone now. The Iranians are there. Um, I don't know what Syria is, but the red lines and uh, Assad is a reformer and all that rhetoric ended up in chaos. Uh, we we handed over Iraq. That was supposed to be our greatest achievement, according to Joe Biden. Self-reliant and independent, stable, all that stuff that Obama characterized it when he yanked everybody out. It's a mess. Um, Iran, for all the talk about uh, this new deal, all, all that really matters is that before we started negotiating, Obama set some guidelines that they had to have all enrichment ceased. They had to have open inspections. They had to have international bodies, the ability to go anywhere. All of that's fallen by the wayside. So notice there's two themes here, that the Middle East is in a chaos. And in each case, this administration said something um, that was absolutely opposite from what happened or uh, are absolutely opposite from what was happening when they said it. There was a big emphasis in the aftermath of 9-11 on changing or creating government institutions to be responsive to the threats that we were facing. So you got things like the Department of Homeland Security and the TSA and you had laws like the, the Patriot Act. What do you make of the – the way that we're addressing this from an institutional perspective. I mean, when you look at the intelligence side, or when you look at the the military side, are we sort of are we resourced appropriately to deal with these threats? I don't think so. I have a kind of idiosyncratic view of why we did so well, and I think a lot of it was we overthrew the Taliban very quickly and disorganized them, and they were not able to host anybody. And then we scattered Al Qaeda under 
Osama and sent him back into Pakistan, threatened Pakistan stealthily. Then we went into Iraq and everybody said that was a mistake. But by the time the surge was over with, we had killed probably 60 or 70,000 jihadists in Anbar province. Uh, everybody said that Petraeus was using coin tactics, but I think more likely he was using coin tactics to hide the fact that he was killing a lot of jihadists and insurrectionists. So I'm not sure during that period uh, that the people who worked for the TSA were keeping us safe. I think there were not very few people that <laughs> were around and had the ability to get into the United States. And I think that's gone now. There's no U.S. action other than predator missions anywhere. So everybody talks about Iraq and Afghanistan, but the fact was we used to have some kind of reputation for killing a lot of bad people. So we'll see how well TSA does and the NSA and all this stuff. But if you say to the average American, TSA, NSA, CIA, Secret Service, whatever alphabet soup you use, it's and that's not even getting into VA and GSA and IRS, right. it's, it's not good. There's a complete lack of confidence in the bureaucracies. Most Americans believe that their government agencies, both those like ICE or the IRS or, as I said, TSA, their primary function is social and cultural and economic. It's to give certain people jobs and to create a constituency, but it's not really effective at what they were originally designed for anymore. Final question that I'll put to you. Admittedly, it's a large one, but it's it's become less commonplace now. But when all of this started, there was a school of thought that referred to this as the long war. The point being that it wasn't just a matter of going into Afghanistan. It wasn't just a matter of tracking down the terrorist leadership. That It was going to take a very long time to really tamp down this threat. What do we need to do that we're not presently doing to make that happen or at least make it more likely? Well, when we tried something quite different, remember that when the president came into office, his first interview was with El Arabia, and then that was followed up a year later by the Cairo speech. And the, the premise was that we'd done everything wrong. We had uh, demonized people in the Arab world. We were unpopular because of that, and we needed to back off and let moderate voices be heard. We did all of that. We're more unpopular, and the Middle East is much worse than it was. So the question is, how could we go back and, and do anything now? And the, and the answer is that I think we had an opportunity, and the opportunity was a historical realignment in the Middle East with countries that were very powerful uh, according to Middle East standards. Egypt won, um, and the Gulf monarchies, Jordan, etc. They were willing to work for the first time with Israel and the West against a common enemy in Iran. And we had the ability to align all of those countries up. And as a condition for that alliance and that strong front against Iran, we could have forced them to cut off all aid to Sunni radicals. And by the same token, we would take the wind out of our, the sails of Sunni radicals by telling people in Iraq to be more equitable with resources. I mean them, in that case, the Shia government, had we had troops there. So we could have really forced Iran uh, to give up a lot more concessions through embargoes, blockades, etc. And that would have really helped us in the Middle East. And I think it would have, it would have made ISIS irrelevant. 
And I don't know if we can still do that, but the next president, the first thing he should do is sit down with the Gulf monarchies, sit down with Israel, sit down with Egypt, sit down with Jordan, and craft a common policy to uh, deal with Iran's nuclear program. And then in, in exchange for that, they're going to have to put a lot more pressure on Sunni extremists. And I think that there's a possibility it could work, but not if you you give speeches like the Cairo speech and you back the Muslim Brotherhood and you, you're ambiguous about Hezbollah and Hamas and, and you just simply give up uh, trying to contain Iran. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.